All right, podcast family, here's a real-world clinical dilemma. A patient first presents for prenatal care in the third trimester. Hey, that may not happen in your practice, but it's a regular occurrence in ours. So we quickly go into catch-up mode, trying to order all the tests that have to be done prior to delivery. This can include cell-free DNA if the patient accepts, even in the third trimester. However, what about other tests that have specific timing of performance, specifically GDM screening? GDM screening has been recommended at 24 to 28 weeks based on the theoretical level of maximal insulin antagonism by human placental lactogen at that time. As cutoff values for GDM screens are based on a 24 to 28 week pregnancy, we just don't really know what the cutoff should be for a serum value after a glucose challenge after 28 weeks. Or what about this parallel scenario? A patient initiates prenatal care early on and completes the traditional GDM screening and passes between 24 and 28 weeks. In other words, she is ruled out for GDM. But later on in the third trimester, she's diagnosed with suspected LGA or a macrosomic infant, or by ultrasound, there's new onset polyhydramnios. These are all surrogate markers for GDM. Remember, in this scenario, they've already passed their routine glucose tolerance test. Do you repeat another glucose tolerance test based on those surrogate markers now in the third trimester? After all, delivery of a macrosomic infant is a well-established risk factor for future gestational diabetes. And here it is. More importantly, does primary screening in the third trimester improve maternal or fetal outcomes? Well, we have scoured through PubMed, Google Scholar, and Embase database, as well as a Cochrane review, and we'll summarize our findings in this episode. We're going to walk down our history timeline of data, starting in 2001 and ending in 2022. That's a 20-year span, and we're going to try to do that within 30 minutes. In doing so, we're going to highlight six publications that gives us some insights into this clinical dilemma. Ready? Let's tackle GDM screening after 28 weeks, yay or nay. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Currently, the ACOG states, quote, all pregnant women should be screened for GDM with a laboratory-based screening test using blood glucose levels. Screening for GDM generally is performed at 24 to 28 weeks of gestation. Early pregnancy screening for undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, preferably at the initiation of prenatal care, is suggested in overweight and obese women with additional diabetic risk factors present, end quote.
Now, although early screening for GDM is endorsed by the ACOG, not everyone agrees with early screening. And I have a podcast on that. You can go back in the archives and check that out. Nonetheless, all agree that routine screening should occur between 24 and 28 gestational weeks. That can be found in ACOG's practice bulletin number 190, which is appropriately called gestational diabetes mellitus. This ACOG publication doesn't describe nor provide any guidance regarding performing a glucose tolerance test after 28 weeks. The U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, however, does have a more broad recommendation for screening, and that was published in 2021. The USPSTF recommends screening for gestational diabetes, quote, at or after 24 weeks of pregnancy, end quote. Did you all catch that? On or after 24 weeks. That's part of the rec, but it doesn't give a gestational week upper limit maximum. That's kind of weird, huh? So it kind of leaves it open as, yep, just do it at 24 weeks and above, but doesn't give you an endpoint of when to stop checking. It's been widely recognized that insulin sensitivity continues to decrease as pregnancy advances. In other words, the degree of insulin resistance increases per week, as does the pregnancy. So it is very possible that patients who screen negative at 24 to 28 weeks for GDM may develop some kind of impaired glucose tolerance or GDM late in the third trimester. But the big question, of course, is what's the cutoff value at that time? We don't have any data. We don't have any guidelines for that. Is it still the traditional values described by uh, Carpenter and Kalston or the National Diabetic Data Group? And do you do the one step or the two step? Or what should we do as a diabetes screen in the third trimester? There are no national policy guidelines on screening for this at that time interval. They're all focused on 24 to 20 weeks, or in some cases, as ACOG does, focuses on early screening with a repeat again at 24 to 28 weeks if that early screen is negative. Y'all see the dilemma? In other words, just to drive home this clinical question and this clinical conundrum, it's unknown if the traditional cutoff values for GDM screening that are used between 24 and 28 weeks is still valid in the third trimester. To date, there are no large studies evaluating the use of the oral glucose tolerance test in the third trimester, and it's noteworthy that ACOG doesn't address that in its practice bulletin, and that's actually not even mentioned either in the NICE guidelines. As stated in the BJOG publication from 2022 by Caldwell et al., quote, It's noteworthy that the current NICE guidelines do not explicitly suggest how to manage women who have features suggesting GDM, like LGA babies or polyhydramnios, when they have a normal oral glucose tolerance test in the second trimester, end quote. And here it is, podcast family, as we mentioned in the intro, and most importantly, does screening for GDM in the third trimester actually improve maternal and neonatal outcomes? I mean, that's really what we're talking about here, right? We don't want to perform a test just to perform a test. We want to impact the immediate outcomes for the child and for the mom. So let's start this investigation with the first article that we found going back to 2001, over 20 years ago, by Leo et al. The title of this publication is Gestational Diabetes Diagnosed in the Third Trimester of Pregnancy and Pregnancy Outcomes. End quote. This was out of ACTA Obstetrics Gynecology Scandinavia. Well, the title is exactly what we're talking about. So let's see what Lau et al. had to say. This 2001 publication was a prospective observational study. 
489 consecutive women were assessed at 28 to 30 weeks by random glucose screening and or a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test. So let's clarify this real quick. This is not late in the third trimester. This is very early on, just at the start at 28 to 30 weeks. All right. Others have looked at testing up to 36 weeks, and I'll address that in a minute. But for this 2001 publication, we're talking about early on in the third trimester. The subsequent management was according to established departmental protocols once this repeat screening test was done. The conclusion? Despite diet treatment, gestational diabetes diagnosed in the last trimester was associated with increased risks of preeclampsia and shorter lengths of gestation. The authors postulated that this is likely to reflect a pathological process rather than the physiological effect of pregnancy on maternal glucose tolerance. If you're thinking, oh, wait, what? What does that mean? Well, they go on to explain that. Quote, as impaired glucose tolerance in the last trimester was associated with increased serum insulin and C-peptide concentrations, and hyperinsulinemia is in turn associated with increased risk of hypertensive disorders, it is unlikely that diet therapy would be effective in the prevention of preeclampsia in GDM, end quote. In other words, yes, you can make the sugars better, but once the sugars become abnormal because of the insulin resistance, it's the insulin resistance that's the issue here that's naturally part of the third trimester that can also contribute to preeclampsia risk. Remember, we have five other publications that we're going to review. This is just the starting of our timeline. And I don't like this publication all that much because they just looked at 28 to 30 weeks. There's a lot more third trimester left. And so this was very, very narrow in their third trimester screening. And it was very early on in the third trimester. But the take-home message is even with diet treatment, we can make the diet uh, treatment have better glucose numbers. But they still had a higher rate of preeclampsia, and they blamed that not on the glucose intolerance, but just on the insulin resistance that's naturally part of the third trimester. Plus, out of all the other factors they also could have assessed, it just kind of left the reader with, well, third trimester diagnosis of GDM raises the risk of preeclampsia, and that's about it. So don't worry, a lot of questions still left, and that's why we have five other publications to go through. Let's keep marching down our timeline and leave 2001 to something a little bit more recent in AJOG in 2012. This study was out of Israel, and it found an increase in composite neonatal adverse events with late diagnosis of gestational diabetes. This was actually the published abstract that was presented at SMFM that was held in Dallas on February 2012. The title of this research was, quote, Should late third trimester oral glucose tolerance tests be offered for patients with suspected macrosomia or polyhydramnios? Evidence in support of the clinical importance of this policy, end quote. This was a case control study of 900 patients who underwent oral glucose tolerance testing after 36 weeks of gestation. Remember the one that we just covered in 2001 was between 28 and 30 weeks. So this is the other bookend now at 36 weeks. Abnormal glucose tolerance tests were defined according to the Carpenter-Kausten diagnostic criteria. To be included in this study, patients had a gestational age of 36 weeks, they had a normal glucose tolerance test conducted earlier in pregnancy, and now had been diagnosed with either suspected macrosomia or polyhydramnios. The rate of composite neonatal morbidity was defined as respiratory distress, transient tachypnea of the newborn, admission to the NICU, 
oxygen requirement, hypoglycemia or hyperbilirubinemia. Those were the endpoints that were used as a composite of neonatal morbidity. The results? The rate of this composite adverse neonatal outcome was significantly higher among infants of women with abnormal late GTTs compared to controls. Furthermore, hospitalization was significantly longer among infants born to mothers with abnormal glucose tolerance in the third trimester. Importantly, the rate of cesarean section was significantly higher in the study group compared with controls, signifying possibly a practice change by the physicians in this cohort because of the fear of shoulder dystocia and macrosomia. So let's summarize. We've got two articles already down. The first one in 2001 said, well, maybe just a higher risk of preeclampsia. And then this second publication out of Israel in 2012 said, hey, there is an increase in adverse composite neonatal morbidity with late onset GDM and the rate of C-sections were higher. We're going to get into the other four remaining publications, but this issue of increased C-sections is a big deal because that's a recurrent theme that we're going to find out here in just a minute, all right? And the reason is, is that physicians and healthcare providers, midwives tend to get a little bit more gun-shy trying to push a patient that may have suspected macrosomia in the presence of GDM. And so the idea is maybe they go to section a little bit earlier, all right? But we'll get into that in a minute. So we're down two publications, four more to go. With these two publications down, you may be quick to think, well, there seems to be a benefit here to screening in the third trimester. Now, remember, both of these two publications were done in patients who already had normal glucose tolerance in the second trimester and then were rescreened in the third trimester. All right. So this is not primary screening in the third trimester. This is rechecking, rechallenging patients who have some surrogate markers in the third trimester after, after they've already passed the routine test in the second trimester. All right. Those are the two studies that we've already done. And if you're thinking again, hey, there seems to be some benefit here, hold on, because not all the publications say that. That brings us to our publication in 2019. Remember our original plan here? We're walking down history's timeline of data. So 2001, done. 2012, done. Now we're at 2019. At least we're getting closer to present day. The first author of this publication was Andrea Fonseca, and this was published in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics. And I hate when they put the outcome in the title because it just gives a big spoiler. But let me tell you what the title of this publication is, and you can pretty much guess where they went with it. The title is, quote, Glucose intolerance in the third trimester is not predictive of adverse outcomes, end quote. Well, it just doesn't leave much for the imagination, does it? I mean, it's like buying a book with everything already in the cover on the title. Uh, spoiler. Well, we're still going to go over this in more detail. But yeah, you can pretty much guess they said no benefit to checking because by the time it's gonna, they're going to deliver, the diagnosis to delivery interval is so short that there really isn't any adverse outcome here. Uh, so it's much to do about nothing. Ugh, that's different than 2012's publication, isn't it? Women with third trimester singleton pregnancies with negative gestational diabetes testing results earlier on in that pregnancy were enrolled into this observational prospective study at a tertiary care hospital. Patients were recruited from 2014 to 2017. 
all underwent an additional 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test between 32 and 36 weeks and were classified as having either normal results or abnormal results. Well, that's good. Nothing in the middle. Healthcare professionals were blinded to these results, so management did not depend on these sugar test results. Pregnancy and perinatal outcomes were compared. 45, which is 13%, had an abnormal third trimester glucose tolerance test. So that's the first clinical pearl. In those that already passed a routine GDM screening, 13% were now newly diagnosed with GDM in the third trimester. In this group, post-term induction of labor was more frequent, as was cesarean delivery. There's the C-section rate that's higher, just like we talked about in the 2012 publication. In this 2019 publication, the authors did find something interesting regarding macrosomia. Macrosomia was more common, but it was not significantly more common after adjusting for confounding variables. And here's a take-home message according to this 2019 publication. Quote, no other significant differences were found. So the authors concluded, and here's a clinical pearl, quote, Post-term induction of labor and cesarean delivery were more frequent in women with an abnormal third trimester glucose tolerance test, but there was no increased risk of serious maternal or perinatal adverse outcome, end quote. So you see, here's where we get the brakes being put on. So we have 2001 saying maybe higher risk of preeclampsia because of insulin resistance. Well, okay, fine. Second one saying there's an increase of composite neonatal morbidity. But remember, none of this was neonatal mortality, so that's good. And then this third publication in 2019 actually saying, um, yeah, we picked up 13% more GDM, but it really didn't do anything in terms of outcomes except cause more C-section rates. Okay. See, are you all figuring out why there's no national guidelines on this yet? NICE doesn't have it. ACOG doesn't have it. SMFM doesn't say anything. Just says, hey, don't, don't forget 24, 28 weeks. And then check earlier if you can. But it doesn't really say anything kind of quiet uh, on third trimester screening. It's because of what we're finding here. A lot of conflicting info. And as you'll see in the remaining publications... Uh, maybe it is a lot to do about nothing. I don't know. We're, we're, we're not done yet. But remember, hang with us till the end because I'm going to give you my personal perspective at the end of the episode. Moving down our data timeline, we now arrive to a publication from 2020 in Obstetrics and Gynecology Scientific. The title of this publication is Delayed Diagnosis of Gestational Diabetes and Perinatal Outcomes in Women with Large for Gestational Age Fetuses During the Third Trimester. That's exactly what we're talking about. So let's see what these authors found. These authors evaluated the incidence of newly diagnosed GDM during the third trimester in those women who were found to have LGA fetuses on ultrasound. These women all had previous routine glucose testing that were normal between 24 and 28 weeks. Now, this was not a prospective study. This was a retrospective study. But y'all getting the drift here? These are all rescreening, and those who had previously screened negative now have some surrogate markers for GDM, and they're getting retested. Among 169 pregnant women, 13% were newly diagnosed with GDM. Is that interesting? 13%, the same number that was found in the 2019 publication. And just as we discussed in the previous publication, the rate of cesarean delivery was significantly higher in this GDM group than it was in the non-GDM group. But here's the catch. 
According to these authors, quote, there were no significant differences in the obstetrical or neonatal complications between the two groups, end quote. So that's a big clinical pearl. So just like the publication in 2019, this study in 2020 said much to do about nothing. We increased our diagnosis by 13%, but it didn't have any difference in obstetrical or neonatal outcomes. So here's a clinical pearl based on this publication, quote, there were no significant perinatal outcome differences between women with newly diagnosed GDM and those without the diagnosis. However, concerns over shoulder dystocia appear to increase C-section rates in the GDM group, end quote. All right, podcast family, quick recap. We have covered a publication from 2001. Then we went to a publication in AJOG, which was actually a published abstract in 2012. We then covered a publication in 2019 in the International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and we just covered the more recent publication from 2020 in Obstetrics and Gynecology Scientific. That now brings us to our fifth publication, and this one is from 2021, published in BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth. This was a single-center retrospective study based on the institution's medical records and delivery registry database. So this isn't a cohort study. This is basically data mining to pull out diagnoses and see what happens. This was done in patients after 28 weeks who had already passed a normal GDM screen at the regular time, right? That's the theme here. Those selected to have a repeat GDM eval had suspected abnormal glucose tolerance based on clinical factors that we've already discussed, like an LGA baby on ultrasound or polyhydramnios. Interestingly, they also included patients to be rescreened who had positive sugar in the urine, although glycosuria is a terrible marker for GDM because you can have some glucosuria in the urine naturally as it overwhelms the uh, tubule resorption mechanism for glucose starting as early as the first trimester. Women with multiple gestations were excluded. For this study, patients who had passed a 24 to 28 week regular glucose tolerance test using the National Diabetic Data Group cutoff of 140 were then subsequently screened with a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test after 28 weeks. All right, podcast family, here's what the authors found. They found that, all right, podcast family, hang on to your hats because here's the shocker, just like we found in the previous publication. Diagnosis of GDM in the third trimester did not improve pregnancy outcomes. Quote, although a diagnosis of GDM during the third trimester did not improve pregnancy outcomes, it did increase the elective cesarean delivery rate. End quote. They go on to explain, quote, these results may have been influenced by the fact that pregnant women with GDM and suspected LGA fetuses were given the option of elective cesarean delivery. Further studies of the significance of diagnosing and treating GDM during late pregnancy are warranted, end quote. I love that. That's the big take-home message that I'll give you my personal perspective on at the end of the podcast, is we, we don't have enough information of what to do with this. Now, I understand the rebuttal. Hey, if you screen them in the third trimester and they pass, then they really don't have diabetes because they have a higher rate of of insulin resistance. So if they pass and they truly are negative, that's great. The problem is, what do you do with a positive result? Well, we don't even know what a positive test cutoff is in the third trimester. Now, again, I'll give you that personal perspective at the end because there's other factors to consider. But as of right now, as we've covered five publications, they seem to be pretty hard and fast that, hey, there just don't really seem to be any big changes here. 
with a diagnosis of GDM in the third trimester compared uh, to those diagnosed in the second trimester. And if you're thinking, well, why is that? Why wouldn't it change outcome? And it really has to do from the time of diagnosis to delivery. It's probably a shorter interval here. And it just doesn't have that length of time to cause significant adverse issues. Does that make sense? Whereas if you have a prolonged period of hyperglycemia, like at 24 to 28 weeks to delivery, then that is potentially what's linked to the higher uh, composite of fetal morbidity. Uh, I remember what the what the previous publication said from SMFM, that there was an increase in composite neonatal morbidity, but that's been the only one that's shown that. So again, take it for what it is, but why don't we just continue on with our last publication, the sixth one in our timeline review. All right, we are almost to the end here because this is our sixth and final publication to review in 2022. The title of this publication is Obstetrical Outcomes Following Diagnosis of Gestational Diabetes in the Third Trimester, that's greater than 29 weeks, versus Second Trimester. This was a retrospective, comparable study. This was published in the American Journal of Perinatology. And because it's the last study that we're checking on, why don't we just cut to the chase? This study aimed to compare obstetrical outcomes between women diagnosed with GDM in the third trimester after testing negative for GDM in a two-step screening in the second trimester. This was again a retrospective study comparing the outcomes among 375 women diagnosed with GDM in the second trimester with 125 women who were diagnosed with GDM in the third trimester. The findings? Well, among women with GDM in the third trimester compared to the second trimester, these women, not surprisingly, tended to have morbid obesity. They also tended to have macrosomia, LGA fetuses, and here it is again, higher C-section rates due to that suspected macrosomia. Among women diagnosed with GDM in the second versus third trimester, however, there was a higher incidence of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and of fetal growth restriction. Now remember, that's interesting because in the other publication from 2001, they found a higher rate of preeclampsia with those diagnosed with GDM in the third trimester. But in this publication, the higher rate of preeclampsia was with those diagnosed with glucose impairment in the second trimester. As for prevalence of new diagnosis of GDM in the third trimester, unlike the other publications that put that number at 13%, this publication from 2022 gave the incidence of 29.9%, so it was higher than the other publications. But here's a clinical pearl. Quote, Diagnosis of GDM in the third trimester resulted in targeted medical intervention, including diet and pharmacological therapy. The short intervention, however, did not reduce the risk of LGA fetuses or macrosomia, end quote. In other words, similar to what we've already discussed in the other publications, it increases diagnosis and it can increase intervention, but it didn't overall really change any neonatal outcome. Oh, podcast family, it's like I've said in previous episodes. Don't you just love a good clinical controversy? Well, this is one of those clinical controversies in real-world practice. I mean, within our own group, we've got all of our providers who are super evidence-based. They're up-to-date, and they're huge patient advocates. But we've got some who order a primary screen for diabetes in a patient who's 35 weeks because that's when they present for care. And then you have my perspective, who's really torn about the whole thing. I mean, on the one hand, I'm all for finding a diagnosis so that we can act on it. 
But at the same time, I have this passion and commitment to be evidence-based, and I'm not sure if the evidence-based data says we're going to improve any outcomes. Now, for those of you who say, but wait a minute, Hector, you get a diagnosis of GDM, and that's good because now you can counsel her on diabetes down the road. But you can also do the same counseling when you find an LGA or macrosomic infant even without a GDM screen because those are two independent markers of future glucose impairment. So I can still do the education without the test. This is why it's important to hit this off at the beginning, ideally, by getting that information out that getting proper prenatal care early on is key because sometimes there's just tests that we miss the opportunity to test for, like maternal serum AFP for body cavity defect. You can only check that between 18 and 22 weeks, ideally between 18 and 20 weeks. But then once that time is gone, it's just gone. You just can't check for that anymore. I mean, there are some things that are time limited, specifically that AFP test and gestational diabetes screening. But that leaves us with the other question. Well, if we don't do a glucose tolerance test in the third trimester, how do we assess for impaired glucose tolerance at that time? And there is no formal guidance. That's exactly the issue. Hemoglobin A1C can be ordered, but it's not as sensitive because you can still have impaired glucose tolerance, but the hemoglobin A1C value be normal because it takes time for that to become elevated. There is some encouraging data on fructosamine, serum fructosamine, as a shorter marker of hyperglycemia because that can tell you what the value is at two weeks rather than waiting for three months like with hemoglobin A1C. In all disclosure, we're trying to put a grant together at our institution to look at serum fructosamine levels for GDM diagnoses, specifically for cases like this. But that is not done yet, even though there is some evidence out there already in the literature about the value of serum fructosamine for diabetes care in pregnancy. So if you haven't put it together, no, I'm not a fan of checking for a glucose tolerance in the third trimester because the data, as we've just covered, really doesn't seem, at least the bulk of the data, doesn't seem to cause any increase or improvement in maternal or fetal outcomes. So what do I do for these patients? Well, I give them education that we've missed the window of time to check for diabetes, but I still get a fasting blood sugar, and despite its horrible limitations, I do get a hemoglobin A1C because if it's highly elevated, that also is helpful as well. And I base my clinical decisions for delivery as ACOG states based on the estimated fetal weight based on ultrasound. And if there's no diabetes, then we offer a primary C-section at 5,000 grams, and if there is diabetes present, either from a past history or because of failure of a fasting blood sugar or the hemoglobin A1C is just really terrible, then of course we drop down the cutoff for a primary C-section offering to 4,500 in accordance with ACOG guidelines. Oh, I know, I know, guys. I gotta be honest. I really am super conflicted about this one because it's not infrequent that a resident will come up to me and check out a patient with this very scenario. Hey, Dr. Chapa, look, we have a brand new patient, no prenatal care at all, but she's here for the first time and she's 34 weeks. Do you want to do the glucose tolerance test? And I feel terrible saying no, but I just don't know what the result is. I don't know what a normal cutoff is at that time. Is it still the 130 with Carpenter Callison or is it 140 with National Diabetic Data Group? Or is it a whole other number that's higher because she's in the third trimester? We just don't know. So every single time I get that question, I tell them no, but I'm highly, highly conflicted. I'd love to know what you all do. Send me a Facebook message and let me know your perspective on this, on rescreening in the third trimester or primary screening for those patients who first show up in the third trimester. All right, podcast family, and with that, we are at a wrap. 
primary screening or rescreening for GDM in the third trimester. What a clinical conundrum. Let me know your thoughts. As always, I hope you found this podcast helpful and we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're a part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.